listening to Trojan War, the podcast, history's most awesome epic. This is episode number 17 in the series. Today's episode is titled, Achilles' Heel. So welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode number 17 of Trojan War, the podcast. I'm choosing to title this particular episode, Achilles' Heel. Now, if you recall where we left things at the end of episode number 16, the episode titled Priam, well, Achilles had returned the body of Hector to his old father, poor King Priam, who had then taken Hector's body back into Troy where the Trojan people were in the process of performing all of the appropriate funeral rites and all of the mourning for the body of their crown prince. And Achilles, as Priam had left his tent, had granted to Priam and the Trojans, on behalf of the Greek army, an 11-day truce in the fighting. So for 11 days, while the Trojans buried and mourned their crown prince, there was no fighting on the battlefield. And then the 12th day arrived. Now, technically, on the twelfth day, the fighting was welcome to resume in full-fledged glory, if you wanted. But the most curious thing kind of happened on the twelfth day, and that's that, well, neither side really responded to the end of the truce with vigorous and renewed fighting. So what I want to do is spend a few moments kind of exploring the mental and the physical set of both camps in this war, the Greeks and the Trojans, as the fighting resumed, this time without the Trojans having their champion, Hector. So let's start inside of the Greek camp and explore why the Greeks were not out there in a desperate desire to continue to fight. Because if if you think about it, you'd assume that the Greeks now would be wanting to press their advantage as much as they possibly could. I mean, after all, Achilles had destroyed Hector, uh, the the Trojans, everything, if you will, their crown prince, their greatest fighter, their political leader, the de facto king. And, and, and on the day that Achilles had destroyed Hector, of course, he had first destroyed, well, much of the Trojan army. So you'd think that the Greeks now would go, okay, the Trojans are physically decimated, they're psychologically decimated, let's press the advantage. But that's not what really happened. And instead, what happened is the Greek soldiers from the warlords all the way down to the common foot soldiers, if anything, following the death of Hector became more, well, tentative and cautious in their fighting. And I think there's a good psychological reason for this. And that's that, well, for the first time in 10 long years, the Greeks could actually assume or conceive or believe in a future beyond the plains of Troy. It was now abundantly clear to everybody in the Greek army and likely everybody in the Trojan army too, that this war was really over and the Greeks were going to win this war. So suddenly Greek foot soldiers who, well, for the last decade had thought no further than getting through today and surviving the the terrors and the horrors of today, we're now thinking about, well, what am I going to do once the war is over? 
Uh, how am I going to rebuild a life back home? And the minute, of course, that the Greeks started to think this way, well, then suddenly no Greek man wanted to be the, the poor, unfortunate soul who, well, died moments before the war came to an end. Nobody really wanted to be the guy that kind of died at, you know, the uh, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. And, and, and then seconds after he had died, well, the Trojans surrendered or something like that. That was not going to be a good plan. So as a consequence, the Greek soldiers, well, they, they went into battle when they were ordered to. Uh, they made their patrols around the walls of Troy, but maybe they were a little bit more cautious and didn't get up quite as close to those walls. Uh, but essentially, the entire time that they were uh, confronting Trojans or skirmishing with Trojans or patrolling outside the Trojan walls, the Greek soldiers were now actually keeping, well, half an eye and half their mind on their boats and on their homeland. What they wanted is they want Troy to fall uh, so that they could grab their share of the treasure and then get on with their lives. So that's what was happening inside of the common Greek foot soldiers. And and it wasn't just the common Greek foot soldiers and some of the warlords that were feeling that way. Achilles now, well, Achilles seemed to have absolutely no continued interest in pursuing the war against Troy. And maybe that really shouldn't surprise us. Let's just kind of do a quick recap and review. Uh, Achilles came to Troy 10 years ago as a young man, and he was there in the pursuit of honor and glory, the things which all young Greek men were raised to value above all others. And well, for 10 years, Achilles had pursued honor and glory and done his bit for Agamemnon's war against Troy, though throughout that war, Achilles had remarked on many occasions that he really had no personal grudge or, or resentment or beef against the Trojan people at all. Uh, he said, they haven't raided my cattle, they haven't stolen my women. Uh, he was just there for the glory. And then, of course, in that 10th year of the war, Agamemnon had summarily removed Briseis from Achilles, and Achilles had gone through an existential crisis and woken up one morning and decided he no longer cared about honor or glory or any of those things, and had actually declared his intentions of giving up in the entire war and sailing back to his homeland and settling down for what the prophecy said was the option of a long, quiet, peaceful, boring, and ignominious life. And Achilles likely wouldn't have even been on the battlefield today had it not been then for Hector having killed Patroclus. Now, after Patroclus, of course, was killed by Hector, well, Achilles entered the foray with a vigor and a vengeance and, and with fighting skill and expertise, if, if not, well, humanity, uh, that nobody had ever seen before. But Achilles' motivations for fighting then were strictly revenge. And though a whole heck of a lot of thousands of Trojans got mowed down in the process, Achilles' only real target for the revenge had been Hector, and, well, now that target had been killed, and Achilles' well, hatred of Hector and all things Trojans had been assuaged and sated, and Achilles had returned to behaving like a normal human being again. So, well, by now, now that the truce was over, now that Hector had been dead and buried, well, Achilles really had no real reasons to want to invade Troy. He didn't care about honor. He didn't care about revenge. What was he really doing here anyway? And and then there was a the matter of the prophecy. Uh, Achilles was fully consciously quite aware that his mother Thetis had told him that you, son, are destined, if you seek glory, to die outside of the plains of Troy. That's what will happen to you. And, and indeed, Hector, when Achilles had been killing him, Hector, in his dying breath, had prophesied and said something to the effect of, uh, uh, Achilles, uh, you will die outside the shadows of these walls brought down by Paris and by Apollo the god. And, and Achilles, at the time, turned around and blithely said to Hector, I don't care less. Uh, um, I'm happy to die any time that Zeus wants to call me to death. But 
Well, those words had been spoken in the heat of Achilles' rage some weeks earlier, and well, that rage having well passed, Achilles now wasn't really quite sure that he was eager to die. Um, maybe he was considering that a long, peaceful life was still possible. Maybe Achilles was mentally pursuing the possibilities of some sort of a loophole inside of the prophecy. Um, and, and therefore, while he would go out and fight when ordered by Agamemnon, uh, Achilles donned his armor with some level of reluctance and without a whole heck of a lot of enthusiasm. So that was a state of things inside of Greece. Now, inside the walls of Troy, well, they were in a different situation. Uh, well, Hector's death had delivered a body blow, both physical and psychological, to the Trojan people. And Troy wasn't coming out to fight because Troy didn't have the numbers to any longer really put a, a, an army into the field that had a hope against the Greeks. So Troy had retreated behind their walls and inside of Troy, well, Troy was facing a crisis of leadership. And, and here's the problems that Troy was facing. They really had to decide who was going to now be the de facto leader of the city. And the options were really rather limited. The Trojans, if they chose, could well give the job back to Priam. It was, well, legally still his job. Uh, Priam had never officially abdicated when Hector had been running the kingdom for the last few years. But, uh, but now with Hector gone, Priam was actually going to have to, if he assumed the kingship, assume the hard work of leadership and governance. And... Well, that wasn't a very attractive option for Priam or for anybody else living inside of Troy. And folks, will be charitable to poor old Priam. He's in his early 80s. He's endured more than any living soul should have had to endure in the last 10 years. But the hard truth of it is that Priam's executive function was failing badly at this point. And well, in a sense, he had really, when he had buried his son, had buried himself along with Hector. So Priam resuming the kingship was not going to do any favors to Troy. But that only left really, well, another option, and that was that Priam abdicated the throne and turned it over to maybe one of his sons, one of his princely sons that he had had with Hecuba. And, well, that wasn't a very good option either. The truth of the matter is all of the quality sons were now dead at the hands of Achilles or the other Greek warlords. And uh, the sons left inside of Troy were the no-good ne'er-do-wells, uh, the ones that Priam had bitterly, just an episode ago, said were not masters of war or governance, but rather masters of dancing. And, and well, one of those guys could have assumed the job, but whether they actually could have governed is, well, not very likely. And, uh, of course, first in line was Paris, a uh, prince of Troy. And uh, aside from being inept, cowardly, and all of those other terrible things that made him a bad choice as leader. Well, Paris was hated and vilified by every citizen inside of Troy. So Paris, king of Troy, would hardly have been a rallying cry around which Troy could have found some way to survive this war. Uh, there was another prince. Uh, there were some folks who said, well, why don't we just, you know, skip Paris and give the throne to the young prince Trollus? And and this was, well, Priam and Hecuba's youngest son, uh, a boy named Trollus. And he, he looked promising. He, he looked bright. He, he, he looked to be well-balanced and have a good disposition. But the poor kid was 13, maybe 14 years old at most, and certainly in no way ready to step into the big shoes of governing any kingdom, particularly a kingdom on the verge of being destroyed by Greece. So if they had have appointed Trollus, uh, King Trollus of Troy would be the new king, well, the fact of the matter is that there would have had to have been some sort of a behind-the-scenes regency who was actually helping poor Trollus actually get on with governance. And 
that behind the scenes regency would have been comprised of Troy's senior bureaucrats and public servants. That the powers behind the throne in every form of government in every age in every kingdom or form of government. And and, and the problem is that well, Odysseus had made sure some months earlier that those senior bureaucrats uh, that could form a regency and take over the mantle of leadership in Troy were no longer in the city. And, and Odysseus, of course, the most clever and wily of the Greeks, had recognized that Troy was running desperately short on leadership. So some months earlier, Odysseus, through his well-developed network of spies and agents inside of the city, had quietly put out word to Troy's most senior bureaucrats and public servants said on the next moonless night, if they so chose, if they wanted to pack up their families and whatever belongings they could carry and leave out one of the back gates, that the Greek army would turn a blind eye to their departure. Well, Agamemnon had complained when he had heard of this. He had, he had turned around to Odysseus and said, Odysseus, I want to put every man of them to the sword and then put the rest of them into chains. Why are you going to give some of them amnesty? But Odysseus, ever the pragmatist, had pointed out to Agamemnon that if uh, Troy was robbed of its internal governance and leadership, then the Troy would fall. And then Agamemnon's ultimate mission and endgame, which was to get that wealth of Troy, would become available. So no regency was possible inside of Troy because Odysseus had cleverly and pragmatically robbed Troy of most of its senior public servants. Of course, it would be a few of the men and who would have stuck around uh, till the end, helping to govern the ungovernable. But uh, most of the public servants would have taken Odysseus's perspective on life and decided that getting out with their skin was better than dying nobly and heroically for your nation. And so, folks, that only really left, well, one other possible option for who could actually govern Troy and try to guide it through this most difficult of times. And... That option, actually, looking back in the situation as historians, is the option that very clearly the Trojan people should have selected because it was actually a very, very good and plausible option. What Priam should have done, ladies and gentlemen, is he should have turned the governance of Troy, the kingship of Troy, over to Prince Aeneas of Dardania. Now, just to give you a quick recap, I've mentioned the name Aeneas a couple of times in previous podcasts, and I am now talking about the same guy. So let me just give you a little bit of backstory on Aeneas. Uh, when, when you met him, of course, uh, the first time you met Aeneas was during the day of Diomedes Aristea, and Diomedes was about to kill the Trojan prince Aeneas, and uh, well, the gods had spirited Aeneas away and, and restored him to health. And then a few episodes later, well, Aeneas found himself on the battlefield, and Achilles was about to kill Aeneas, and once again, an Olympian god stepped in and saved Aeneas and again restored him to health. Uh, both times the Olympian gods explained that Aeneas was needed by fate and deadly destiny for some future wonderful purpose. So so this particular Aeneas guy is an important character and, and, and here's how he ended up at Troy and on the battlefield. Troy's closest military ally before the Greeks arrived was a city called Dardania. It was just a little bit north of Troy, uh, virtually located where the modern-day Dardanelles Straits are located, and, and Prince Aeneas was the crown prince and the heir to the throne of that particular city. Now, the Trojans and the Dardanians were very, very close. They same, shared the same language, the same culture, the same religion, and most of the time they intermarried the princes and princesses. So, so when Greece had arrived and invaded Troy 10 years ago, the Dardanians had sent their crown prince and foremost fighter, Prince Aeneas, along with a huge chunk of the Dardanian army, to the aid of Troy. And Aeneas and his soldiers have been living inside the city of Troy for the last 10 years. 
And by all accounts, Aeneas had been comporting himself not only brilliantly in the battlefield, but also brilliantly in all the councils of war. Now, to add to it, Aeneas was not only brilliant, a great fighter, incredibly charming, uh, devastatingly good-looking. The rumor was out there that his mother was none other than Aphrodite, which would have explained Aeneas's DNA and his good looks. Everybody inside of Troy liked Aeneas. So, so why now, when Priam looked at the situation, recognized he couldn't govern and that he had no sons who could govern, did Priam not just turn around to his closest ally and say, Aeneas, you're a cousin of mine, you're actually a second cousin, why don't you become the king of Troy? It would have been the smart thing to do. Well, here's why it didn't happen. Priam, like all monarchs raised in the proud Eastern tradition of monarchs, had, as I told you earlier, first wife, second wife, then multiple concubines. And as a consequence, Priam had, well, a Troy littered with his offspring. Uh, Homer tells us that Priam had 50 sons and countless daughters. And you have to imagine, ladies and gentlemen, that every one of those sons, through different women and Priam's couplings, well, each of those sons had at least some form of a tenuous claim on the Trojan throne. Some of them are more direct than others, and clearly Hector and Paris had the most claim in the throne. But, but in the event that Hector wasn't around, which he wasn't, or Paris was incompetent, which he was, well, then those other princes could possibly have taken the throne. And, and what this meant is if you were a monarch in Priam's style, you not only had to worry about external enemies, you had to worry about internal politics all of the time. Because on any given day during Priam's reign or during Priam's father's reign, well, there was a possibility that some faction of the family, some distant relative or cousin or something, would see weakness inside of the main family line of succession and consider staging some form of a military coup and, well, giving the succession of Troy to their own son. So, so Prime had been raised all of his life to be very careful of this sort of thing. And as a consequence, when Prince Aeneas of Dardania had arrived to the rescue of Troy and proven to be a spectacular fighter and a brilliant leader. Instead of Priam turning around and showering Prince Aeneas with thank yous and lauding him with high honors, Priam had done the opposite and uh, feared Aeneas, shunned him, and uh, cut him out of all sorts of honors completely because Priam was desperately, desperately afraid that, well, his line of succession through Hector and Paris would be lost and maybe Aeneas would come in and try to supplant that particular family line line on the Trojan throne. And of course, there were reasons why this was made even more terrible for Priam, and that's that there were prophecies littered all through the Trojan world. Things like, a Dardanian prince will save them all, or Aeneas will lead his people to a new Troy. And, and, and of course, prophecies like that just, well, just made Priam's suspicions even worse. So in, in spite of the fact that what Priam should have done right now was immediately turn the kingdom over to Aeneas, declare him king of Troy, and allow Aeneas to sort of figure out an end game to survive the Greeks. Instead, Priam isolated Aeneas, did his best to shun him, and, well, went looking for other possible solutions to save Troy. Now, folks, given that the Trojans had given up on leadership solutions to save Troy, they really only had one other solution left, and that was the solution used by nations in all times and all places who are well down to their last throws of the dice and desperately looking around for some way to save themselves, and that is that Troy resorted to magical or wishful thinking. The Trojan populace, from the most common man or woman in the street, right up to King Triom and the royal family themselves, 
began to secretly hope that some magical, amazing deus ex machina would suddenly arrive on the scene and liberate Troy and save it and vanquish the Greeks. And uh, they began fishing and looking for any possible, possible deus ex machina that might do this thing. Well, the deus ex machinas, the faint hopes, the magical solutions, the saviors arriving at the 11th hour began to arrive at Troy. And, and every time that they did, the Trojan people embraced them fiercely and then were, well, bitterly disappointed. So let's just review the first two and the most famous two that arrived. One day, shortly after the resumption of, well, at, well, the end of the truce and the resumption of what could have been combat, but the Trojans weren't fighting, a king arrived at Troy along with a fairly large contingent of soldiers. He had with them almost 10,000 men. The king's name was King Memnon. He somehow managed to make it with his men in through one of the back gates of Troy without being obstructed by the Greek forces, then paraded his soldiers up through the citadel to the palace of King Priam himself. And King Memnon, ladies and gentlemen, well, King Memnon well, he created a sensation. And the reason why, of course, is because King Memnon was exotic, magical, and mystical, and the Trojan populace immediately began to whisper that this man had certainly been sent to them by the gods to save them. And the rumor mill began to spread, and what the Trojan people decided is that King Memnon had come from a distant and exotic land. The Trojan people said that King Memnon had actually come from faraway Ethiopia. Now, um, just to give you some clarification here, Bronze Age ideas of geography weren't that well developed, so far away Ethiopia wasn't necessarily the state of Ethiopia as we know it today, but, well, essentially anywhere sub-Saharan in Africa was, quote, far away Ethiopia. And the story was that Memnon had actually caught wind of the war, the Greeks versus Trojans, years and years earlier, and had immediately left with his 10,000 men on a long march to liberate the city, and had amazingly arrived just at the miraculous last moment before Troy was defeated. And, and as Memnon marched his soldiers through the streets, well, the Trojan public, well, they just piled onto the rumor mill, and everything about Memnon and his men was exotic. Well, of course, his skin color was different, and, and that made him exotic. And, and and a novelty, and and then his language was different, and that made him exotic, and and some of his weapons and his armor were different, and that made him exotic, and and, and before long, the Trojan public had added to the rumor mill. He was so powerful and tall and devastatingly dangerous and good-looking that soon the Trojan people had decided that he must be the son of a goddess herself, and they decided that Memnon was the son of the goddess of the dawn, Aos, and, and, and rumors spread that Memnon would be able to take on Achilles in single combat because... Well, if you thought about it, Memnon's mom was a goddess and Achilles' mom was only a demi-goddess. And, and by the time that Memnon and his army actually made it up to the palace, well, the Trojan people were already planning the victory celebration through the streets at the defeat of the Greeks. And, uh, well, you can, you can maybe forgive a half-starved and delirious population for grasping onto any kind of straws like this, but I don't know if we can ever forgive, uh, well, the senior minds and the leaders inside of Troy who immediately embraced all of the rumors, all of the fantasy, and all the wishful thinking also. And, and in fact, old man Priam staged a huge and elaborate state banquet for Memnon and his men and essentially exhausted the final food stores inside of the city in this banquet. And, and then the next day declared that Troy was saved. Uh, Priam opened the gates, marched out Memnon, his 10,000 men, and whatever soldiers he could muster left inside of the city, and, and they prepared to destroy the vastly superior Greek forces. 
And inevitably, uh, well, like most deus ex machinas that arrive at the last minute to save armies everywhere, uh, things went south in a hurry. Memnon's men comported themselves very well, but they were vastly, vastly outnumbered by the Greeks. And uh, when the Greeks realized that they were actually going to have to fight, well, the Greeks went at it with a vigor. They didn't want to die. And late in the afternoon, Achilles roused himself from his own tent and playing the lyre. And languidly put on his armor and then strode out onto the battlefield, met King Memnon, this mighty daughter of Ios, the goddess of the dawn, and, well, killed Memnon with very little effort or concern at all. Well, the rest of the mighty Ethiopian army panicked and ran and got away with their lives, and so came to an end Deus Ex Machina plan to save Troy the first. Well, they should have likely given up and resorted back to good, steady, confident, uh, common-sense leadership at that point. But by this stage, the Trojans were simply waiting for their next miracle savior to arrive. And they only had to wait a few more days, and she arrived. And yes, I said, she arrived. Ladies and gentlemen, deus ex machina number two to arrive at the back gates of Troy and somehow make it into the city without obstruction from the Greeks was Queen Penthesilea of, get ready for it, the Amazons. Queen Penthesilea of the Amazons arrived in the walls of Troy with counting 12 Amazon princesses, and the mighty 13 were there to destroy Achilles and the entire Greek army. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you think King Memnon created a rumor mill sensation inside of the populace of Troy, well, you can just imagine the effect of a female queen and her 12 princess warriors. Troy went absolutely berserk. Uh, you have to imagine the scene. Penthesilea and her 12 princess warriors arrived at the gates of Troy and then paraded their way up to the palace of Troy riding on horses, not riding on chariots pulled by horses, which the Greeks and the Trojans understood, but literally sitting astride actual real horses and riding and apparently doing so with some degree of comfort and confidence. And, and of course, this was completely unknown inside of the Bronze Age world of Troy or Greece. The Trojans and the Greeks of 1250 BCE only used horses as a means of conveying chariots to the battlefield. And, and maybe possibly the most exotic of the Trojan or Greek fighters might have considered standing on their chariot while it was being guided by a chariot driver and lobbing an arrow or a spear at the enemy. But the idea of riding horses bareback or with stirrups, well, that was a technology completely beyond the Bronze Age people in the Mediterranean. But somehow Penthesilea and her Amazon 12 princess had figured this out and mastered it. So, so as the Trojan people watched, uh, uh, Penthesilea and her, and her 12 princesses riding their horses, uh, carrying bows and arrows on their back, and with these one-handed battle axes that nobody had ever seen before, proudly rode up towards the palace. And, and, and by the time they'd got to the palace, well, the rumor mill of Troy had gone berserk, and everybody who was suddenly an authority on Queen Penthesilea knew about all things Amazon, began to spread the stories. And, and, and the stories just, well, I'll give you an example of some of the things that were said about the Amazons inside the walls of Troy. Uh, they, 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 they live someplace north of the mountains, high up in the misty mountains, north of the Black Sea, in an exotic secret palace and, and, and a frontier that only women may enter, some of the rumors said. And, and, and then the next rumor was, 
The Amazonian women, they despise men. They only bring men into their, into their kingdom once per year for the purpose of, of sleeping with them for just one night so that they can produce offspring and more Amazonian female fighters. And, and then after the men have done their duty, well, they're banished or, or sometimes even killed by the Amazon women. And, and, and that rumor went on. And, and then there was the rumor about what happened to the young boys that inevitably would have been some of the offspring of these pregnancies. And, and those rumors were, well, well, the boys are taken and exposed on, on mountaintops and killed and only the girls are allowed to live. And, and then they got onto some of the more sort of more, I don't know, licentious and fun stuff. Uh, the rumor soon spread that the Amazonian women have absolutely no carnal desires for men at all. And, and then, of course, the men spread the rumor, which men always like to spread. In fact, they only have carnal desires for each other. And that's what they do in their free time. And, and of course, that rumor spread. And then, and, and then the next one, of course, was that in, in the Amazonian women, they have access to the earth goddess, the ancient mother goddesses that, well, well, we used to worship back in the ancient, ancient days of forgotten history, back before Zeus and his mighty seed spewing thunderbolt arrived in the scene. And, and, and of course, that spread. And so by the time that Penthesilea and her Amazons had made it up to Priam's palace, well, they were an overnight sensation. And the Trojan people and the Trojan governance was firmly convinced that these 13 magical warriors were going to vanquish Agamemnon and the entire Operation Trojan Storm in short order. Well, the final rumor, and I just have to mention this one because it's so funny, is the next day as the Amazonian 12, led by Penthesilea, their queen, followed by some overly enthusiastic Trojan soldiers headed out in the plain, the final rumor spread. And, and that's as the Amazonian women grabbed their bows and arrows. They fought on horseback with bows and arrows. Uh, somebody noted, either through bad armor or through bad imagination, a particular strange thing. And the rumor spread that the Amazonian women, if you would believe it, were so dedicated to warfare and archery that when the Amazonian women came of age, they deliberately cut off their left breast so as to not impede the bowstrings recoil after a shot was fired. And well, within 15 minutes, that story had spread and had become gospel inside of all of Troy. And in fact, even the Greeks had heard it and believed it too. Now, now folks, just out of... <sighs> sheer interest in this, I, while I was preparing this particular episode of the podcast, I headed off to Wikipedia and plugged in images of Olympic female archery champions over the last 15 years. And my best cursory examination of those particular images suggested to me that not one Olympian archer in the last 20 years had seen fit to remove her left breast in order to allow the string on the bow to recoil properly. And, and then not satisfied, I went even further in my academic pursuits and 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 looked up the modern day equivalent of an Amazonian princess that we have. Of course, I speak of Ms. Katniss Everdeen of the Hunger Games, she of the incredibly powerful bow and arrow. And I, I looked for images of Ms. Everdeen and very, very clearly she was managing to draw her bowstring without any obstruction from two rather ample and spectacular breasts. Uh, you can go to my website if you want further evidence that these myths were absolutely absurd. And it's likely worth commenting that the only reason that any of these stories about these women warriors would have gained any traction is that we were deep into the Bronze Age world and the idea that women might be capable of 
hunting, fighting, or any form of sport involving anything to do with the bow or any form of weapon was just so foreign to both the Bronze Age Greeks and Trojans that it wasn't really hard for these stories to actually gain some credibility and traction. There was likely nobody actually in the community who could turn around and say something as simple as, oh, well, actually, when I draw the bow and arrow, I don't need to remove my breast or that type of thing. So, so the fact that these stories gained traction and were such a novelty is just an indication of, of the limited role of women inside of this particular time period in world history. Well, Queen Penthesilea headed out on her white horse with her battle axe in hand and her bow and arrow, and she confronted Achilles, the greatest of the Greek warriors. And Queen Penthesilea got killed pretty quickly. It was not really much of a contest. As for her other 12 Amazonian princesses, well, the Greek army made short work of them, and magical deus ex machina way of saving Troy number two was a complete bust. The Greek soldiers chased the remaining Trojans who had been so confident as to come out and fight back behind their walls, and the last of the military saviors of Troy was gone. But here is what is interesting, and that is the story that rippled through the Greek and Trojan ranks shortly following the death of Queen Penthesilea of the Amazons. And there were multiple eyewitnesses who claimed to have seen what happened, and, well, they all disagreed with each other, but here's what most of the eyewitnesses thought they saw happen. They thought they saw Achilles confront Queen Penthesilea in combat and use either his sword or, more probably, his long spear to injure Penthesilea as she rode on her horse. And then as Queen Penthesilea was hit by Achilles' spear and was collapsing out of her horse and falling to the ground, the eyewitnesses claim that they saw Achilles leap forward and catch Penthesilea as she fell and then gently and delicately cradle her dying body down to the ground. The eyewitnesses further report that at that moment, Penthesilea's helmet fell off and Achilles suddenly saw in his arms the most ravishingly beautiful and gorgeous but now regrettably dying woman that he had ever seen in his entire life. And the eyewitnesses claim at that moment Achilles fell desperately, hopelessly, and head over heels in love with Penthesilea, queen of the Amazons. And then, of course, she died. And the eyewitnesses account that Achilles held her dead body there and burst into tears of uncontrollable grief and sorrow as he held on to the corpse of the woman he had killed. Now, there were other versions of what happened when Achilles killed Penthesilea, and, and they ranged across the spectrum from, uh, from the banal. Uh, other eyewitnesses said, no, Achilles killed her, and then moved on as though nothing had happened at all. Other witnesses uh, went to the lurid, and they said she fell. Achilles suddenly realized it was a beautiful woman and then committed necrophilia on her corpse. But, uh, but the important thing is not really the truth of what happened, although the last one is really rather sickening and nasty. But the important thing for our purpose as a story is the version of the death of Penthesilea that made it back inside the walls of Troy and to the ever-credulous ears of old man King Priam. And King Priam heard the version which had Penthesilea falling, Achilles catching her, holding her, falling in love with her, and then weeping inconsolably as he held on to the Amazon queen's corpse. And that, ladies and gentlemen, 
was the story that precipitated by far and away the most audacious, ludicrous, harebrained, insane, or brilliant, you will have to decide when I finish telling you the story, Deus Ex Machina plot to save Troy yet. And the plot developed inside of the brain of old King Priam. Here's how Priam's thinking developed the plot. Priam thought to himself when he heard the story, Oh, Achilles, apparently he is sad and lonely. Oh, Achilles, he is clearly over the death of Patroclus. He is now crying in the arms of a woman. Oh, Achilles, clearly Achilles requires the comfort of a woman. And Priam thought, I wonder if Achilles would like the comfort of a princess, a beautiful princess who he could hold in his arms, who is still alive. And then Priam considered, I have daughters. They're princesses. Some of them are even beautiful. Perhaps Achilles would take some comfort in one of my daughters in his arms. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you can see that Priam was grasping on to a series of straws, but out of those straws, Priam was building a fully formed and then very well-furnished straw house. And eventually, when Priam had completed the mental gymnastics involved in his plan, he had come to the following conclusion. Priam had decided that what he would do is he would marry one of his princess daughters to Achilles and then make Achilles, his new son-in-law, Troy's new king. And then Priam thought Achilles would protect Troy with as much ferocity and as much zeal and as much vigor as he had attacked and attempted to destroy Troy over the preceding 10 years. And as for the other Greek warlords, well, once Achilles was king of Troy, well, Agamemnon and the other warlords would not any longer dare attack the city. They would have to sue for peace or sail home without any treasure. And Priam thought this just might work. Now there were limitations in the plan and Priam grudgingly inside of his own mind accepted them. He recognized that his royal seed in the line of succession, if this plan worked, would now run through his daughter as opposed to his son. But Priam thought if Achilles becomes king of Troy, he will protect Troy and it will save us all. So Priam, having formulated the plan, having built his house of straw, went to work on the implementation of the plan. He knew that step one was choosing a daughter. Now, when Priam reviewed his available daughters, he really only came up with a short list of two that might fill the plan. Most of his daughters were well too old. They were already married. He had a couple of daughters who were way, way too young, not yet marriageable. But inside of the eligible, beautiful daughter category, Priam narrowed his list down to two. Uh, one of the daughters was named Cassandra. The other was named Polyxena. Now, Cassandra might have been the logical choice simply in the looks department. Apparently, she was a ravishing beauty, but Priam wistfully and regretfully acknowledged what everybody knew, which is that his daughter Cassandra was certifiably insane. A sad story about Cassandra, but the gist of why she was certifiably insane is that Cassandra would 
appear normal in social functions and smile and blend in comfortably in palace settings, and then suddenly Cassandra out of the blue would begin to blurt out the most dire warnings or prophecies. And, and when people would try to calm her and tell her that she was being ridiculous or hysterical or that the things that she was threatening, the, the impending dooms that she was always talking about were absurd, well, Cassandra, instead of calming down, would just raise her voice and scream out her dire warnings and prophecies even louder. And, and, and frankly, it was, it was socially embarrassing and awkward when a princess of Troy did this because everybody else in the room would have to try to be polite. And so uh, most people inside of Troy decided the best thing to do with Cassandra was to just leave her locked up in her quarters and, and not really allowed her out in public very much in spite of the fact that she was a ravishing beauty. Now, Folks, in future episodes of Trojan War, the podcast, I'll, I'll, I'll fill you in on the uh, the source, the cause, and the ultimate consequences of poor Cassandra's raving prophetic madness. But uh, for now, the important thing is that Priam dismissed her out of hand. Achilles would not want to marry a lunatic. And that left only one other daughter, a girl about 17 years old named Polyxena. And, and Priam realized that she was a very attractive daughter and, and, and would have been married off. The only reason that Polyxena wasn't already a princess in some foreign land, of course, is that, well, uh, princesses were great trade bait when a country was doing well, and they were a wonderful way to form and cement military and political alliances. But, well, Polyxena had come of age, of marrying age, during the siege of Troy, and, well, Troy was no longer considered inside of the Mediterranean world to be an attractive military or political ally, and hence it looked as though Polyxena was not going to be visited by some courtship calling prince from some other state and was likely doomed to die an old maid or doomed to die a worse fate if Troy fell at the hands of the Greeks. But she might be just perfect for the plan, Prime decided. She was attractive, she was pleasant, she was 17 years old. Maybe, just maybe, Achilles could fall in love with her. Which meant Priam needed to come up with a meeting. That was the second part of the plan. He needed to find a way to get, well, Achilles into the room, if you will, and present Achilles with a proposal of, would you like to marry my daughter and become king of Troy, Achilles? And, well, that part of the plan didn't turn out to be very difficult, actually. Um, Achilles and Priam had already broken bread together in Achilles' tent. There was a tentative bond of trust, or at least a grudging respect or acceptance and deference for each other. And, and so Priam simply decided all he would do is get a discreet message to Achilles in Achilles' tent, saying something to the effect of, Priam, king of Troy, wishes to meet with you on a confidential matter of state. Please come alone. I have not informed Agamemnon of this meeting. And and Priam recognized that that would be enough to pique Achilles' curiosity. And Priam also likely wryly recognized that, well, Achilles could not help but take the bait to be invited to a meeting of a matter of state where Agamemnon wasn't invited. Uh, Achilles still hated Agamemnon much more than he hated anybody inside of Troy. So it was simply going to be a matter then of finding a location for the meeting, some neutral ground. And uh, Priam realized that there was an ancient abandoned temple at the foothill of Mount Ida, sort of in no man's land between the walls of Troy and the Greek camp. It was a, a tiny little stone temple. It would only hold about six or seven worshippers dedicated to the god Apollo. And Priam thought, well, we could meet there. A large enough room for myself and Polyxena to sit down with Achilles and have a potential son-in-law conversation. So, ladies and gentlemen, that was Priam's thinking, either harebrained, either insane, or possibly genius. You'll have to decide once you hear the balance of the story. So, here's what we do know about how the plan actually went down in practice. Achilles arrived. 
Outside of the temple, he appropriately and reverentially removed his armor and his weapons. You did not bring armor or weapons into a holy place. To do so was to, well, tempt the curses of the Olympian gods who had prescribed against doing anything of that sort. You didn't bring armor into a temple. You didn't bring weapons into a temple. Gods forbid you didn't kill anybody in a temple or you would earn the eternal enmity of a god. So Achilles left his weapons outside. He, he had scanned the temple. There was nothing to fear. There was old doddering King Prime in his 80s and a 17-year-old girl, no threat at all. Achilles had then entered the temple. Now here are the parts of the story that we do not know. Part one of what we do not know. Did Polyxena know why she was there in the temple with her father? Had Priam brought his daughter in on the plot and explained what he intended to do? And if so, was Polyxena a willing participant? Had, had Polyxena heard her dad's plan and turned around and said, oh, Wonderful father, I can hardly wait to, to marry and sleep with the butcher of my brothers. Uh, that'll be wonderful. Anything for Troy, dad. Uh, was that what she had said? Or when Priam had brought Polyxena into the plan and she turned around and said, I, I would rather throw myself from the battlements of the city first, father. Are you insane? Well, we don't really know, but likely actually the best and most cynical speculation on this, folks, is to look at Bronze Age models. Likely Prime didn't bother to tell his daughter Polyxena about the plan at all. After all, he hardly needed a daughter's permission to marry her off to another man. So Prime had likely just made sure she was appropriately and slightly, just a little bit provocatively dressed and then dragged her off to the meeting with no explanation at all. Now, on to part two of what we do not know, and this is the big thing that we do not know about that meeting, folks. Why was Paris, Prince of Troy, already at the temple, hiding behind a tapestry, armed with a bow and poison-tipped arrows, when Polyxena, Priam, and ultimately Achilles arrived at that temple? And we only have two possible answers here, folks. Answer number one is that Paris had somehow got word of his father's plan to, well, supplant Paris as the heir apparent of Troy and replace Paris with Achilles as the king of Troy. And, well, somehow Paris had decided he didn't like that plan and consequently Paris, prince of Troy, had raised himself from Helen's bedroom, obtained his favorite weapon, the coward's weapon, a bow, dipped the arrows into poison, and was now hiding behind a tapestry, intent on assassinating Achilles, so that Achilles did not supplant him as the king of Troy. That's one possible option. Or, there's another possible reason why Paris was hiding behind that tapestry. And that is that yours truly, your storyteller, has not been giving old King Priam nearly enough credit for his mental acuity and faculties. There is the possibility, folks, that the wily old king still had one final trick up of his sleeve and that this entire plot, this entire fake offer of giving Achilles the kingship of Troy, of, of marrying Achilles off to Polyxena, had all been just part of an elaborate ruse to get Achilles alone and unarmed into a temple where, well, Priam's son would put a poison arrow into Achilles' back in dispatch of Achilles and therefore Troy's greatest threat to survival. We don't really know. Now, it might be fun to sort of stop and speculate on how, well, 
that conversation between King Priam and Achilles might have well gone down inside of that temple before we get on to the specifics of what we do know happened. But it's, it's kind of fun to play with the idea, ladies and gentlemen. And if you think about it, you know, there's going to be Priam kind of standing awkwardly beside his teenage daughter and Achilles is going to arrive at the temple and, well, eventually turn around to Priam and say, well, old man, what brought you here? What great matter of state caused me to come and visit you and get on with the business, old man. We can't stand together in the temple all day. We are enemies after all. And, uh, Priam, well, maintaining his kingly regal dignity as best he could, would have kind of had to awkwardly say, well, Achilles, I'd kind of like you to meet my daughter. Her name is Polyxena. As you can see, she's a very beautiful princess. And, well, Achilles, I I, I guess I'll just get right to the point. I, I was wondering, Achilles, if you might, well, um, be interested... Instead of, well, attacking our city and trying to bring Troy to its knees, as well you have for the last decade, and in, instead, Achilles, of continuing to kill all of my sons, as you have for the last decade, I was wondering, Achilles, perhaps if you might be interested in a change in policy direction, as it were. Um, Achilles, would you, would you consider marrying my daughter, Polyxena, becoming my son-in-law, and then, well, Achilles, um, well, assuming... Uh, the kingship of Troy, uh, I think you'd be ideally suited for the job. You obviously have demonstrated a, a passionate and sincere interest in the city. And, uh, well, maybe being the king of the city would be the best thing for you, uh, the best thing for Troy, the best thing for the Greeks. Uh, so that was my suggestion, Achilles. Uh, what do you think of it? And, and we can only imagine that Achilles would have been struck dumb for a moment, marveling at the old man and, and, and wondering either silently to himself or, or, or out loud what particular, uh, particularly vicious or cruel deity had, had struck madness into old King Priam at this stage that he would suggest something so absurd, so ridiculous and so audacious. But, but then when Achilles recognized that Priam was actually in good faith and appeared to actually be, well, mentally sound to a reasonable degree, Achilles would have had to consider the options. And, well, Achilles would have got to the point where he would have remembered, I think, those prophecies, a dire prophecy that he was destined to die on the plains of Troy inside of the shadows of the long wall of Troy. And Achilles, likely not wanting that to happen, might have started to reflect that, well, prophecy and fate and deadly destiny are notoriously vague and sketchy business, and what a prophecy might say might, on the surface, not exactly be what the prophecy ends up practically doing. Um, you, you had to be very careful with trying to interpret and decipher these things, and and maybe, maybe just Achilles would have thought, uh, uh, I, I, I could still live a long, peaceful, happy life, and then someday in the future, not today, not tomorrow, not next year, but someday in a distant future, well, die on the plains of Troy and never see the land of my fathers again. Maybe this is an avenue to sort of find a, an escape clause inside of the prophecy, and, and I could become king, I could live a long, happy, peaceful life. And when Achilles started to play with those ideas, of course, then his mind would start to immediately go to the practical implementation plan of such a policy of Achilles as king and hence lord protector of Troy. And and there, I'm sure that he was a bright enough man that the delicious irony of, of the whole situation of Achilles standing inside of Troy with Troy's remaining army and daring Agamemnon, king of kings, to march across the plain and fight Achilles 
Achilles in single combat to the death for Troy. Well, well, Achilles, with his eternal and, and well-earned enmity towards Agamemnon, likely thought, I, I can't think of a more deliciously wonderful and ironic thing than to turn the tables on that, that bastard son of a bitch Agamemnon one final time by taking his city from under his nose and then defending it and sending the other Greeks packing if they dare to attack. So we, we don't know what Achilles saw. We don't know exactly, precisely how Priam phrased his question. But those are my storytellers' reasonable sort of guesses and suppositions on what might have happened. And, and, and I think the thing that we can agree on is that, well, Priam's offer would have been so shocking, so stunning, so audacious and, and crazy that Achilles would have, as he considered the possibilities, whatever he considered, have been fully mentally occupied in replying to Prime and Polyxena. And of course, Paris would have had his opportunity to sneak up very close behind Achilles and draw that poison-tipped arrow and aim carefully to lodge that poison-tipped arrow into the back of Achilles. That, we do know, was what happened next. Now, we also know that Paris, when he released that arrow, missed with his shot. And the arrow, instead of striking violently with full force into Achilles' back, fell feebly, impotently to the ground and lodged instead of in Achilles' back, rather in Achilles' left heel. Now, folks, I know a few of you are going to scream at this point and yell at me and say, come on, Jeff, you really can't expect that to have happened. But at this point, I'm actually going to rush back to Homer's Iliad in my defense and remind you that many, many, many episodes earlier, Paris had headed out in a fight armed with his bow and arrows and had taken careful and deadly aim at Diomedes, one of the warriors. And here is precisely how Homer, the authority on Paris's military prowess and bowmanship, described that particular incident. Here is what Homer says. Paris carefully aimed, and the arrow flew from his bow, and it pierced the instep of Diomedes' right foot. To which Diomedes, more annoyed than injured, had aptly replied to Paris as follows. And again, I quote Homer. You weakling, you girl-crazed seducer, you perfumed sissy, with your cowardly arrows, you have barely scratched me. Your shot is no more painful than if a woman or a child had hit me, Paris. And so, ladies and gentlemen, irony of ironies, Paris released a poisoned arrow, and if Paris had been able to shoot with any accuracy and force, that poisoned arrow would have hit Achilles dead in the back, then bounced off of that back, and done Achilles no harm at all. But because Paris was an inept shot, then likely running away even as he launched the arrow, well, the arrow fell feebly to the ground and hit Achilles in the only place where Achilles had any possible vulnerability at all. In Achilles's Achilles' heel, the back of his left foot. Now, you will recall that way, way back in episode 3, The Birth of Achilles, we recounted the story of how Thetis brought her infant son to the river Styx, then, because a prophecy said it would protect him, had dipped her son into the waters of that river. And the waters of the river Styx, of course, had completely coated all of Achilles' body in magical, uh, immune-from-harm-restoring properties, 
save for the place where Thetis was holding on to her son so she didn't let him go in the river. Achilles' left foot. And that tiny little bit of space, ladies and gentlemen, was the only place on Achilles' body not protected by the waters of the River Styx. And that, of course, is where Paris's arrow, guided either by a cowardly, inept Paris, or, more probably, by a vengeful god Apollo, managed to lodge in Achilles' body. Well, the arrow hit Achilles. It punctured his skin. Achilles looked up. He saw Paris. He, he cursed Paris. May you die by the same weapon by which you are attempting to kill me. And then Achilles, ladies and gentlemen, the poison coursing through his veins, had stood up and made his way out of the temple, doing his best to stagger back to the medics on the Greek lines. But Achilles only made it partway back across the Trojan plain, and someplace out there on the plain, inside the shadows of the great gates of Troy, the poison coursed through Achilles. And Achilles, history's most dangerous, glorious weapon of mass destruction, died on the Trojan plain. Prophecy fulfilled. A short, glorious, heroic life, and then a quick death in Troy. But his songs, the prophecy said, the songs of Achilles, well, they would be sung by bards down through the ages. And here we are, ladies and gentlemen, 3,000 years later, and yours truly, a contemporary bard, is singing the song of Achilles and accounting the details of that famous death, the death that we all know about if we know nothing else at all about the entire story. And so... This is likely a good place for me to say goodbye and to wrap up this episode of Trojan War the Podcast. Clearly, we've ended every episode of Trojan War the Podcast with the death of a great hero. We did it with Patroclus, we did it with Hector, and so now let's say goodbye with the death of the greatest of the Greek champions, Achilles. And I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that the death of Achilles has once again changed everything inside of our story. If you want to use a prize fighter analogy and think of this war between the Greeks and the Trojans as a 12-round epic boxing match, well, the Trojans looked as though they were down on the canvas and pretty well out for the count. But then suddenly, at the start of the 12th round, the Greek champion, Achilles have been delivered a killing blow and, well, now the Greeks were down on the canvas too and, well, the fight, which we thought was virtually a done deal and all over, is suddenly, well, got rounds and rounds and rounds left to pursue. The Greeks and the Trojans will be fighting for a long time to come. So, that will be the content of episode number 18. I'd invite you at this point, if you want, to immediately head over and listen to that episode and find out how the Greeks respond to the death of their champion and, just as importantly, how the Trojans respond. On the other hand, as is always your choice, you could choose to stick around for the post-story commentary. And needless to say, I'm going to devote that entire post-story commentary to... Well, if you will, exploring the death of Achilles and looking at all the different accounts, the explanations for how he died, why he died, who killed him, what they killed him with. And there were myriad sources out there. And what I will do in the post-story commentary is have fun with exploring and playing with them all. So we're going to leave things now. Some of you are obviously going to immediately run over to episode 18 and continue with the story. And for the rest of us, well, in a few moments, we'll pick up with the post-story commentary and explore all things Achilles.
So, welcome to the post-story commentary, and our subject, of course, is the death of Achilles. Now, just a quick reminder. We are, when we entered this episode number 17, the episode titled Achilles' Heel, we have left behind Homer's Iliad as the source of our story. Instead, we have moved from Homer's one authoritative source into that jambalaya of fragments, sources, fragments of fragments, little bits and pieces, recollections, historical comments on lost works, and all that sort of thing that, well, accumulated over the 1500 years between the time of the Trojan War and about 100 or 200 A.C.E. So we're back into that same territory, ladies and gentlemen, where we spent episodes 1 through 10 of Trojan War, the podcast. My job as a storyteller is to take the myriad sources and out of those myriad sources attempt to cobble together some form of a coherent storyline for your listening pleasure. So we're back there. And a quick reminder, the death of Achilles, that means, does not appear anywhere inside of Homer's Iliad. It happens on the other side. So we face the same opportunities and the same problems that, well, I encountered in episodes 1 through 10, which is that we have to play around to sources and decide how we want to write our story. So let's start off this discussion of what really killed Achilles by looking at what Homer, our, well, our most authoritative source, knew about the death of Achilles and what he says about it. So here's what we find inside of Homer's Iliad. Homer tells us and is very confident that Achilles is destined to die on the plains of Troy. In fact, as I told you, in Hector's dying prophecy, when Achilles has killed him, Hector turns around and he says precisely the following, and I'll quote from the Iliad, the Mitchell translation here. But the gods will not forget this, and I will have my vengeance on that day when Paris and Apollo destroy you in the long shadows of Troy's western gate. And then, well, Hector died having prophesied these things. So we do know that Homer knew that, well, Achilles was going to die. He was going to be killed by Paris, possibly with the help of the god Apollo. And that it was going to happen inside of the long shadow of Troy's western gate, which geographically means on the plains of Troy. Now, we also can likely assume that Homer knew that if Achilles and Paris were going to fight each other. It was not going to be a fair mano a mano warlord a warlord fight because, well, the Paris that Homer presents inside of the Iliad is incapable of that kind of courage or military prowess. So it's fairly safe to assume that Homer is expecting that Paris will be using his coward's weapon, his bow and arrow, and that's what's going to actually cause Achilles to die. And and there are scholars out there, some who actually say that Homer even hints at this. And the reason why he includes the Diomedes passage, which I talked about earlier, where Paris ineptly hits Diomedes directly in the foot when he was aiming for Diomedes' torso, is Homer's way of hinting about, well, what Paris will do later when attacking Achilles with bow and arrow. So that, ladies and gentlemen, presents us with a problem. And here's the big problem. Homer's Achilles is not immune from battlefield injuries. 
Homer's Achilles clearly needs armor. I mean, when he loses his armor, when Patroclus puts it on and Hector takes it, then Achilles doesn't go back into battle until Thetis has procured magical new armor for Achilles. And, and actually, Homer's Achilles manages to sustain a physical injury. In book 21, when Achilles is out fighting on his all-day rampage against all things Trojan, there is actually a minor Trojan fighter who lobs a spear at Achilles and manages to, well, in Homer's account, strike Achilles on the elbow and draw blood. Now, you're likely turning around at this point and saying, yeah, but Jeff, I thought you said that Achilles was immune from any form of injury uh, due to the whole river sticks thing. And and you might be protesting that, well, what am I doing now talking about uh, Achilles being bleeding and somebody being able to hit him with a spear? And well, Jeff, you're likely saying if Achilles was actually dipped in the river sticks, then why did he need armor? He could have theoretically gone into battle butt naked and, and couldn't possibly have been wounded. So so at this point, well, you and people down through the last 3,000 years have essentially turned to whoever's telling the story and said, well, make up your mind. Is Achilles fully mortal? Or is Achilles magically immune due to being dipped in the river Styx? So here, folks, is, well, the problem that I confronted as a storyteller. If Achilles is mortal and can be wounded, then I had to cut out the river stick scene from my epic telling of the story. Or I could have chosen to keep the river sticks scene in my epic telling of the story. But in that case, and I certainly could not have shared with you the Achilles wounded in book 21, which you find inside of Homer's Iliad. So I had to make a choice. Either I had to have a fully mortal fully vulnerable Achilles, or I had to have a river sticks dipped, therefore magically immune Achilles. But obviously I couldn't have both. Now, when I made my decision, I chose to keep the river sticks story. And my reasons for this were, well, A, everybody knows that story. It's part of our popular, part of the popular sort of Trojan War epic canon. It's, it's an iconic story. Uh, and frankly, I think it's an awful lot of fun. So I, I felt that any introduction telling of the Trojan War epic of necessity had to include the story of the river sticks. And that raises a question, well, why did Homer choose to leave the River Styx story out? And there's two answers to this question. The first one, there are some critics that claim that Homer left out the River Styx story because Homer didn't want to include magical immunity and all kinds of elements like that inside of his plotting characters. And well, I disagree with those critics and respectfully invite them to actually go back and read the Iliad and with maybe with a highlighter in hand, uh, highlight all the sections in the Iliad which contain forms of magic. And I, I think Homer had no problems with magic. My reason, I think, that Homer left out the River Styx story from his rendition is that, well, the River Styx story had not yet been written, so Homer was unaware of it. Ladies and gentlemen, the historical record tells us that the River Styx story first shows up in a work called the Achilleid by a writer called Statius, who is not writing until the first century A.C.E. So literally 1,350 years after the Trojan War. And that seems to be the first account anywhere in recorded history of Achilles being dipped into the river Styx. So Homer does not include magical immune Achilles because, well, that element of the story is a late addition to the body of the Trojan War epic. And though it's one of the more popular ones today, it certainly didn't exist in Homer's time. Now that brings us to the next question. Let's assume that Achilles did have only one fatal weakness, his Achilles heel. 
Is it plausible to believe that a poison-tipped arrow could have actually killed him if that poison-tipped arrow hit that Achilles heel? And for this, we can turn to academics. There's a really great writer whose work I use a lot, a guy named Barry Strauss. He wrote a book called The Trojan War, A New History. And Barry Strauss argues two things. Number one, the Trojan army of the Bronze Age routinely used poison-tipped arrows in battle. So that was commonplace practice. That's acceptable and believable. And next, the Bronze Age world had knowledge of poisons, which would have, well, pretty well guaranteed instant death once lodged into an individual's bloodstream. So could Paris's poison-tipped arrow had it hit the one, uh, well, vulnerable place inside of Achilles' otherwise river sticks immune body? Could it have killed Achilles? And the answer there is most certainly yes. And that leaves us with just a final couple of questions to wrap up on the death of Achilles, but they're really cool questions. And what they are, folks, is really alternate plot lines that I rejected in sort of my version of the story. So if you were to turn to an academic and say, so... Could you answer the question for me, please, how precisely did Achilles die? An academic or scholar would turn around and here's the answer they'd provide. We do not know. Next question, please. And that is, folks, the correct answer. And the problem with that answer, of course, is that, well, it might get you tenure. It won't get you any future gigs as a storyteller. People don't want the, the major character in the entire Trojan War epic Achilles to, well, die and then have the storyteller turn around and say, well, we don't really know what killed him. Because, well, frankly, that would suck. So storytellers have had to basically cobble together from the remaining fragments of sources some sort of a plausible story. But I need to tell you right now that the story I cobbled together, the Polyxena, Paris, and Priam plotline, well, it hangs together in the most gossamer of primary source threads. So feel free if you want to reject my telling of how Achilles died out of hand. But at the same time that you're rejecting it, I invite you or dare you to find a more plausible explanation for how he might have died that any self-respecting storyteller could offer up. But here are some of the other options. Option one. Some tellers say that what happened is Achilles managed during a full-born Trojan retreat in battle to actually breach the walls. He got inside one of the gates when the Trojans opened the gate to let the army in, but then the gate was closed behind him and Achilles found himself trapped in a structure that you would have got inside of a Bronze Age fortification, which was a narrow stone structure that funneled all of the attacking enemies into a closed confined space. And that trapped inside of that space, Paris, from a high, high vantage point on the battlements, had lobbed arrows at Achilles until one of those arrows successfully managed to hit him in the heels, and that arrow magically happened to have poison in it, and hence Achilles died. So that's one other way I could have told the story. Option number two. Achilles was hit by Paris's poison arrow while the two of them were fighting on the Trojan plain. End of story. Option number three, Achilles was hit by Paris's non-poisoned arrow while they were fighting on the Trojan plain. The arrow managed to cripple Achilles, and Achilles, formerly swift-footed Achilles, who could run away from such things, could now not run away, being crippled, and the other Trojans leapt onto him with swords and spears and made short work of the man. Option number four, and at this point, well, this option is for all of you romantics out there in podcast land. Achilles and Polyxena fell in love with each other once they met in that temple, and, and, and one night as the two of them were there lying in a lover's embrace, 
Achilles had turned to Polyxena and said, Polyxena, I would like to tell you my deepest, darkest secret, which I've shared with no other human being. I, I have a foot which is vulnerable to harm. The rest of my body is safe, but I know of the one place my mother warned me where I am in danger, and I only tell you this, Polyxena, because I love you and I trust you. And then... In this particular version of the story, Polyxena back in the palace had accidentally revealed this piece of critical data to her brother Paris, who had summarily armed himself with poison arrow tips, headed out onto the battlefield, found Achilles, and shot at Achilles' heel with a poison arrow tip, direct hit, and killed Achilles. And then in the final romantic part of this story, Polyxena realizing that her loose lips had sunk ships and that it had been her that had led to the death of Achilles, the love of her life, Polyxena, on the death of Achilles and on his funeral pyre while the Greeks burned him, Polyxena burst onto the scene, threw herself onto the fire, and died inconsolably burning beside her lover Achilles. So there is, well, the uh, romantic version of the story. And then there's a variant on that story for those of you who aren't romantics but are rather patriots. And in this particular version of the Polyxena Achilles story, well, Achilles again confesses his vulnerability, his secret vulnerability to Polyxena, but it turns out that Polyxena has only been faking that she's in love with Achilles. She's actually a Trojan double agent who loathes and detests everything to do with the man. So Polyxena rushes back to Troy, tells Paris, her brother, and then Paris kills Achilles with the poison arrow in the aforementioned vulnerable heel. Now, in this version of the story, Achilles dying realizes that somebody betrayed his confidence, knows that the only possible person who could have done that is Polyxena, and he calls in the Greeks who have gathered around him as he is dying and saying, Polyxena, she betrayed me, she's responsible, get her. And the Greeks captured Polyxena, and when they burned Achilles, they threw live Polyxena's body onto the sacrificial temple to, uh, to burn there aside from Achilles as punishment for what she had done. And in this particular epic version of the story, Polyxena's dying words are something along the idea of, I only regret that I had one virginity to sacrifice for my country. And then she had gone heroically into the flames. Now, you're getting the idea, folks. There are massive versions of how Achilles died. Uh, some of the ones I'm not even going to tell you about involve ghosts. Uh, there, there's others which are mere images of the Iphigenia sacrifice to get the winds blowing. In this version, Polyxena is sacrificed to get the winds blowing in the other direction when the Greeks go home. But I, I think I've made my point. Uh, if you really want a scholarly answer to the question of how did Achilles die, well, the only scholarly answer available is we really don't know. Next question, please. But I'm a storyteller, so I had to come up with a plausible storyline. And I'm going to leave here your decision on whether I got it right and invite you at this stage to, well, move on if you want to episode number 18 of our story, where, as I said, we will be picking up, well, the continuing story of the Greeks versus Trojan. It looked like it was all over for the Trojans, but now that the Greeks have lost Achilles, well, it's anybody's fight again. So, hop over to episode 18, TrojanWarPodcast.com. It'll be there any day for your listening pleasure. And in the meantime, try to have yourselves an epically wonderful day. And if you have an Achilles heel in your life, do your best to, well, avoid it, at least for a day or two. Have a wonderful day. Talk to you again soon.